0: You're listening to the Purpose Driven Person Podcast. This podcast is made for leaders unwilling to give up their desires to be purpose driven. Guys, I made this show for a compass for you to have more purpose in leadership through four concepts, creation, communication, collaboration, and connection in both business and in life. My name is Matthew Leland Cox. I'm the founder of Never Give Up Youth Healing Center, Never Give Up Wellness Center, and Never Give Up Foundation. You can find me at MatthewLelandcox.com. Are you ready? Well, let's do this. Alright, welcome Las Vegas to another wonderful show of the Never Give Up Show. I'm Matthew Cox, your host. You're listening to the show where we talk about parenting children with special needs and much more. Today I'm excited we will be interviewing Stanley D. Klein. He's a PhD, he has a PhD in psychology. And also, he's the director of the Disabilities Books Incorporated, and we'll have him explain that in a little bit. I'm excited for this show because Dr. Klein has a lot of information to help us understand what it's like being a parent with a child with a learning disability, but what his experience has brought is he's watched and worked with parents over the years that have discovered that their child has a learning disability or is currently dealing with learning disability over his career time and then now he has dabbled in uh helping people write books or help edit and and put books out there for parents. And um I'm just excited. Let's bring Doctor Klein on because I can't tell you anymore the introduction gave us a good thing there. Uh Doctor Klein are you with us?
1: Yes I am.
0: And I'm so excited. Well great. It's excited to have you on the show today. Thank you for being on the show.
1: I'm glad to be here or More- be here by phone anyway.
0: (laughs) You're you're way across the country, aren't you? (laughs) I I want our listeners to learn a little bit more about you, Dr. Klein. They heard the intro. Is there anything you want to add so they can get to know you a little bit more?
1: Oh, my. (laughs) I don't know. I've been working in the field for many, many years, as you said, and uh, learned a lot of things. The most, probably the most important thing I learned over all these years, is that parents become the most important experts about their own children. When they initially find out they have a child with a disability or some other kind of problem, uh, they may certainly feel overwhelmed, but over time, they become the most important experts. People like me may have some special knowledge, but the parents are the ones who are with their kids all day long and they know them the best.
0: They do. They are the experts. Uh, sometimes they, I think they have they they'll second guess themselves. But when it comes down to it, they do know their children the best. Wouldn't you agree?
1: Absolutely.
0: And you know, I was looking at this. I, I'm always curious, um, Dr. Klein. You you it said in the introduction uh, that you helped out in a camp a, a while back, and that's when you decided to go into the field even more. Um, how old were you when you decided to do that?
1: Uh, 1954 I was 18 years old.
0: Wow. And and what made you as you were at that camp and you were watching uh individuals with cerebral palsy and other disabilities what drove you cuz I always think this is a calling. We don't get into this field just cuz we want to.
1: <laughs> well, I think that's certainly true. I was not the only person who stayed in the field. Mm-hmm. My little sister, for her oh, wow. example, who was four years younger, she joined me at the camp the second year I was there, and uh, she recently retired as a professor of social education at Indiana University, where she's been teaching for many, many years. Wow! So there are; those are just two examples. There are certainly many others of people who came and worked at the camp and just found it very rewarding to be able to... Be of help to kids and their families. And uh, at the time, of course, we were all <laughs> in college or in high school, not really sure what we were going to do with ourselves when we grew up or if we grew up. <laughs> and uh, it certainly got our attention.
0: So, as uh, a young 18 year old, you're sitting there helping these young kids and their parents. You decided to take this journey, which this journey has been great. You've been doing it for a long time. You you decided to go into the in 1963. That's when you graduated from Clark University. Is that right? That's right. And you got your degree in um, s- clinical psychology. Yes, yeah, that's right. Now, in in that degree, you you discovered along the way that there was parents the emotional upset when you were in the camp as a young youth but as you got into the field, um, the emotion that comes by it when these these parents learn that their children have a disability, what were some experiences that you had through your practice?
1: Well, much of the experience I had with parents is not so much in my practice as it was going around the country and speaking to parents, meeting with parents, through my work with Exceptional Parent Magazine. So I would just met so many parents, but the interesting thing about that, in my training, I was trained that parents were the cause of children's problems. That's the way we used to think about things, and some people still do, but I, in, the, in when I was being trained back in the 1960s, uh, that's what we were taught. If children had a problem, it meant their parents had a problem, so at the clinic that I first trained at, if you called in to get some help for your child, the mother was invited in to get help for herself because it was assumed she caused the problem. And strange as it may sound, we did not involve the fathers, which is really weird looking back at it, but we didn't. Uh, somehow, I guess we thought fathers were out uh, hunting for food. or uh, But later... I think not that much later, but i I was on a committee here in Massachusetts when President Kennedy established uh mental retardation planning projects. Now we don't use the word mental retardation or the term anymore, but anyway, that's what we did in those days and this was these are committees set up in every state to be to look at what services there were and how the services could be improved and so forth and to help make plans to do that. Now, some of the people on that committee were parents. And I discovered that they were not neurotics like we were taught they were. They were perfectly capable people and nice people, and they had a lot to contribute. And I began to realize that this material I had been taught, which blamed parents, was just totally wrong. And the people in my profession and, and other related fields, it was time to take a different kind of a look at families.
0: And and you know, it is interesting, because a lot of times in, in, their, in this field, they do have, we are a country of blaming the mothers and the fathers, kind of that whole uh, Freudian theory. It's, it all right. stems That's from... And 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 it's interesting because it it comes back to if you just follow the thread back what the kid is dealing with you'll find out what the emotion is going on. It, it really has sometimes as you're pointing out it really has nothing to do with the parents. It it's just the kid is trying to deal with what cards they were dealt in life. And, oh yeah, that's Absolutely. tough. I mean, being a child with a learning disability, grown up, it's it has a lot of uh, um, baggage and and pains and bruises on the way up. And
1: what we, mm-hmm. I'm sorry to interrupt. You. No, you're good. I mean, one of the things that we were doing, which was terrible, as I look back at it. We were making parents feel guilty. We were telling them they were causing their children's problems, and that was a terrible message to be delivering. But anyway, I stopped. I changed my message.
0: <laughs> no, you're good. And you know, as you went along, in in it's interesting because the the whole term of the psychology. Or what you're talking about, um, it had to change, and it was interesting, like you're talking about, because when you started changing that process in in the way you get you practiced it practiced, what did you have? What was the experience you were starting to see through the family units that you were working with?
1: Well, if families had a lot that they could do to be helpful to their children, and that they weren't causing problems; they were trying to deal with issues that were coming up with their kids, Mm -hmm. and they were learning a great deal. Uh, I also learned that one could uh, give people information and they could use it. See, one of the things back in those olden days, we were taught that, well, you couldn't just tell parents or give them some suggestions because they wouldn't follow them, because they were hung up on whatever was hanging them up. Uh, And then I had a, a short history on a radio program for about six months, in which I answered questions of parents mm-hmm. on the radio, and it was a it was you know, people could call it was a call in show, and people would call in, and I discovered that I could make suggestions, and people would call back and say it worked or it didn't work, but that clearly they could easily take on information and make good use of it.
0: And and it's that simple, because cause I always feel is that people do have as long as they're willing and they have that knowledge like you're you're accessing, and it's just the skill sets that we lack. We we don't put the skills into use sometimes, and we forget to go forward on it. Now, Dr. Klein, you in the last recent years you've been a co-author or editor of a few books. Yes. Um, And what I want to do is these three books we talked about, we're going to focus on one of the books throughout the show. Can you tell us the three titles of those books?
1: Well, the first was the one that we're going to focus on tonight, Mm -hmm. called You Will Dream New Dreams. Okay. Which is a book of short essays by parents of children with many different kinds of disabilities. And we ask them to write an essay describing what they wish someone had told them when they first found out about their child's disability. And we put together over 60 of these essays wow. in this book and they're short essays because we had learned, we meaning the woman named Kim Shive who worked on this book with me, Kim is a deaf woman and she's also the adoptive parent of a son who's now an adult who's also deaf. So she had personal experience as well as professional experience.
0: That is so good.
1: And we knew, we knew that parents didn't have a lot of time to sit down and read, so that's why we focused on, let's get short essays so people could read them in a few minutes and then put them aside or come back to them, etc. Uh, the, the second book is a book called Reflections from a Different Journey. And that's a book I did with a man named John Kemp, who's a friend of mine. I first met John when he was a college uh, I think he was a law student, and I was interviewing him for the magazine. It was 1972. Uh, but anyway, he's a man who was born without arms and legs, and he's had a remarkable career.
0: Now, he's a public speaker, correct? He goes around... He does all... a lot of public yeah.
1: speaking, yes. and and... I think we've talked about doing a show with getting him involved in the program as well, and I think you'll find that. I mean, John is just a wonderful guy. He's had a very productive life and talks about what his father did, how much his father did to really help him become the person that he is. And The Reflections from a Different Journey is a book, again, of short essays, but this time, By people who grew up with disabilities, all again all kinds of disabilities, and we asked them to write what did they wish someone had told their parents. So, in a sense, it's people who grew up with a disability giving advice to parents about taking care of children like themselves.
0: That is so neat.
1: And we had limited, unfortunately, the publisher only let us publish forty of them. We got by then. By the time we worked on that book, the Internet had been invented, and we got stuff from all over the world, just wonderful material. Uh, The third book is a book called From There to Here, which is a story, again, stories of people, their adjustment to spinal cord injuries. I had gotten to know a man from California named Gary Karp, who's a man who's done on a number of very good books in the whole area of spinal cord injury and Gary had a spinal cord injury as a teenager and we were talking about doing something together he he knew of the other book I had done of essays and I said well what could we do in the spinal cord injury field because that's his area of expertise it was not mine I mean I know people like him and I've worked with him but i don't claim any expertise, and he said, well, the the thing that people always ask him was how did he get from there, meaning being in the emergency room just having, having had a terrible accident, to here, meaning today, when he has a productive life as a happy adult, and how did he get there? So we asked, again, people to write essays people who've been through spinal cord injuries, to write essays about how do they do it, how do they get from there to here. And we got all kinds of interesting stuff. Wow. So again, the the people with expertise are the parents and the people with disabilities themselves, which is often forgotten. People forget that the people who really know this stuff are the people with disabilities or the parents who've raised children.
0: Yeah, and and they have the knowledge base and it's just sharing those stories and I I love how you guys put this in a format where you can read these short essays real quick and and you can ab- absorb one essay a day or here or there and it's in a format that um can inspire us. Yeah. And and that's so, you know, you know, growing up with that disability, I I've I'm excited that um Dr. King, one of our co-founders, she found you guys and um we got all your books, and we're, we were just excited to share it with the, the parents we work with.
1: Yeah, well, actually, uh-huh. I've been rereading some of those essays and reflections from a different journey, because we just uh, did a new edition of the book. Oh, wow. With the same with the same essays. Uh, and they, I'm so proud of them. I mean, that we were able to do that book, because they have such important messages, as do the the other books but i mean it's uh those have been more current in my mind because i was working on the book
0: yeah and the book i want to we want to focus on today is the dreams and new dreams yes our dream, we'll dream a new dream, dream. i'm you saying will dream new dream yeah there we go you will dream new dreams and i left two words out <laughs> and uh this book was it's it's inspiring because it has a lot similarities to what uh, the foundation, the Never Give Up Foundation, goes around when we put workshops on and we teach parents to accept their child's learning disability and know that how they approach it with their energy is, is very important. And and I think when we were talking the other day, Dr. Klein, is that it, it is it's very disheartening when a parent finds out their child has a learning disability or a physical disability.
1: Yeah, or any any kind of disability. Yeah,
0: anything. And,
1: and and it to think about how what what is it like? Parents. Be, well, if we go back, let's talk about kids with disability is picked up immediately when the child is born, for example, which would not include a learning disability. But th- these things are similar, regardless of when the disability occurs. But parents waiting for their child, going through pregnancy or adoption, have all kinds of dreams for their children. And then they have the child, and suddenly their dreams sort of are, are crushed. They they don't know if, you know, and the whole idea of the book was to help parents understand they could dream new dreams because mm-hmm. they lost the the. Kind of the dreamed for a child, who of course, when we dream of a child, we're going to have it's a child who's perfect in every way, and none of us have kids like that. But <laughs> <laughs> the uh, th- that dream is lost.
0: Yes, and and it is because I mean. Because when we have a child and that we're getting ready, we're excited as parents, as dads. We want that football star. We have expectations. Right. We want doctors. And then that dream is just crushed. That's right. And so how, do we, how are they going to function? How are they going to survive? So in these 63 essays, when you guys were putting them together, what did you discover? Was there a theme? And, and why did you choose this book?
1: Yes. Well, we chose it because we knew that the most important thing for parents was to meet other parents. That while people who are professionals like myself or like you, that we can do things that are very helpful, but the most important people for parents of children with disabilities to meet is other parents and to share their experiences. So we felt, let's do that in a book form and that's how the book came about.
0: Oh wow. And and in the process when what what was the way you went about to gather the essays? How how was that process? Was it tough?
1: Well, no, we got lots of stuff. We in those days it was just be, it was before the internet. Once the internet happened, it got much easier to do this kind of a project, but we worked with the parent training and information centers, and there's one in your community as well. In in Las Vegas, every state has parent training and information centers, mm-hmm. and we worked with them, and they put information out in their newsletters and other ways of getting to their membership. So that was how we collected the essays through these organizations.
0: So, as you gathered the essays, were they did you have how many came in, and what did, how did you guys decide which ones were? That just seems like a big process because you probably wanted yeah. to put them all in the book.
1: Well, yes, you do. And uh, certainly that. once we did the books using the Internet, we got so much stuff, and so much of it was very good, and we were limited because the publisher only wanted to publish so many pages. Uh, so that established the limits. But let's talk about the You Will Dream New Dreams. Because yes. Because the thing that's very important to talk about is that most parents describe feeling terribly alone when they find out they have a child with a disability. They may sort of know that there are other children with disabilities, but when they're hit with the news that they have a child with a disability, most parents talk about how they thought they were all alone and they had all kinds of feelings besides feeling very alone and that in thinking as we've heard from parents and talked to parents over the years we come to the idea that getting the diagnosis of a child's disability starts a mourning process in parents it's it's like the grief we would feel if a child died but the child is alive and parenting has to go on but to think about it that th- again the child of our dreams has died and that means we have to, we need to mourn that and why is mourning why do we even talk about mourning and the sadness that we all experience when a friend of ours dies or a family member dies uh, I, I heard a very interesting presentation I think it was in Colorado years ago by Two parents who had a child who was born with all kinds of complicated medical problems, Mm -hmm. who then died at the age of 10. And they talked about uh, uh, this is better if I have a blackboard, but I'll try to describe it. They said, if there is no mourning, N-O mourning, there will be no healing. But if people know mourning, K-N-O-W mourning, and really know it, the experience of mourning, then they will know healing. And I think there's a great summary of what we're talking about. Let, let me just quote some of the things in the book.
0: Yeah, definitely. That,
1: that parents, this they have this wide range of feelings. When they get the news, they have all kinds of feelings. Uh, and one of the tasks for professionals is to help parents talk about these feelings and to validate that the feelings are legitimate, that people sometimes worry, well, I had all these terrible ideas. Well, yes, they're okay, but they're real and they're okay. It doesn't say anything about you. So, one of the, for example, one parent wrote, I felt real physical pain, the likes of which I had never experienced in my life. It began in my gut, went up through my chest and terminated in a wave of nausea and tremulousness that seized my entire being. Uh, Another parent wrote, I lay in recovery. I guess this was with a newborn. Overwhelmed by fear, grief, and disbelief, the pain was so sharp and deep, it seemed more than I could possibly endure. Another parent wrote, emotions are in turmoil, running a gamut of reactions, including fear, shock, anger, guilt, sadness, and shame body, mind, and spirit, real from the impact, worst of all, you find you have no control over the way you feel. And that is what parents, many parents experience that. And it's very important for parents to be able to talk to other parents about those experiences and learn that the feelings they had, as upsetting as the feelings may well have been, feelings are legitimate. And they're okay to have the feelings and to share them, particularly with people who care about you, and that that will help people to heal, to be able to have a, a life.
0: You know, and that's so important to have that healing process in the morning there.
1: Let me read again from the book. Definitely. of Again, written by a parent saying, and here's what the parent said about what we're talking about she said i wish i had known that the intense sadness a parent experiences upon learning of a child's disability is called mourning i wish i had known that it is all right to grieve over a living child i wish i had mourned with my husband instead of by myself i wish i had known that whatever form mourning takes the intense sorrow eventually ends i was sure i would never laugh again but there was a time when life triumphs over sorrow, and uh, the humor part. Of the person who wrote that I later met, and she talked. She told the story of one of the benefits of having her child was deaf. And said one of the uh, benefits. She came up was she learned. American Sign Language, and that enabled her to swear at her children in the mall, (laughs) and nobody knew what she was saying.
0: (laughs) So Uh, it was a secret. (laughs) Right. Wow. So she turned it into, you know, a negative into a positive, (laughs) even though it was swearing at her children in silence.
1: (laughs) Which many parents in these essays report how, Uh over time, they became the experts, how their lives changed, and how much they learned, and how they grew as Human beings in the
0: process, and and you know what I actually ask uh, a lot of times when I visit with parents too, Doctor Klein, is a lot of times individuals or human beings when they see somebody with a disability or they approach him, they don't know how to act. Right, and and it's the same thing what we're talking about when the parent first finds out. It's that same feeling of what do I do, or how do how do I get over this in the morning, and and and. It, there is that process, and you probably, in the stories here, until they finally go to acceptance, and they and right. they accept that child. And you, I, I like what you put here. You said the parents will mourn, but they can heal. Yes. Tell me a little bit more about that.
1: Okay. Uh, again, I'm going to do this by reading
0: yeah, no, definitely.
1: pieces from the book itself, because... The parents' words are much better than my words um example one well let's
0: see now these are expert or these are stories out of the book right here that we're talking now about are, I'm, okay.
1: I'm taking quotes now people first of all, let's talk about a little bit more about the morning because okay. there's something special there. That is not often talked about. People talk about the initial mourning when they get the diagnosis, but what also happens, and to many parents, is they, every now and then, they feel all these terrible feelings again, and it's in the literature it's called chronic sorrow, but it's it's a normal thing that we, and again if we think about it in terms of loved ones who have passed away that every now and then we think of them and we feel very sad and upset. Uh, And that's normal. Mm -hmm. And it's it's normal when parents sometimes, again, have these terrible feelings that they had when their child was born. For example, one parent wrote, grief may hit you when you least expect it. And this person described, during a Christmas shopping trip, for example, as you buy baby toys for a nine-year-old. That's a time I remembered. Uh, so that the feelings can be brought back. And I bring that up because many people think there's something wrong with them because they re-experience these feelings. Rather than it's part of the process, it's normal. It doesn't. And like another parent who wrote, uh, every now and then, or even now, she says, it's very hard to admit how depressed I was. Every day was a struggle. I felt like I was drowning. Grief wrapped itself around my heart. Exhaustion so overwhelmed me. I sought medical help. I started on antidepressant medication and sought counseling. And then she went on, she said, Time and therapy helped so much. I no longer felt the need to dump all my feelings of depression on my husband his support had been crucial but he too had been suffering keeping his grief to himself so that when they were able to share their grief with one another they both were able to grow and go on and feel better
0: so in in you know and that's important that both of them have that mourning because it it does um, have a tendency, and uh, as I've seen in my career, it can pull par- marriages apart if they're not careful, if that mourning process doesn't take place. Um,
1: yeah, and and some, often, mm-hmm. often, I think what still goes on is that fathers are left out.
0: They are still.
1: And, which is, enough. men are different. Men, <laughs> in a lot of ways, men are different than women. We all sort of know that. But uh, forget about it in some of these discussions. Uh, for example, there's a man who's done a lot of wonderful work in the field with fathers, a man named James May, who was out in the state of Washington. He told this story, which I'll repeat, uh, that he, he used to go around the country and helped fathers, groups of fathers, get started. So he told the story of going to some community, and fathers had been invited, and they came to this meeting. And he said one of the fathers looked at another father and said, What are you doing here? It turned out that these, that these two guys worked side by side and had for a long time. Never knew. And they were Yeah, they were in the same office, and they never knew. And what James May says, if it was two women, within 20 minutes they would have had complete case histories from each other.
0: Gender differences, right?
1: (laughs) Yes, there are, and so that fathers need to be involved as well. There's a there's a very nice website called FathersNetwork.org. Oh, that's that's a great place to visit.
0: FathersNetwork.org, okay. Yeah, I mean, mothers
1: are allowed to visit too. (laughs) It uh, it particularly provides information and emotional support for fathers.
0: And you know, in the workshops too, uh, uh, Dr. Klein, because I'm glad you're bringing this point up because a lot of times when we'd have fathers come to our workshops, um, and these shops were five hours long, the fathers had the most resistance because they, you know, sometimes even the fathers themselves had learning disabilities and they didn't know how to deal with it on their own. But they also, you know, they come from the old school. Well, you just got to work harder or get into it. So or they didn't know how to deal with the emotions, so they just kind of compartmentalized it and, right. and just went on with and, it every day.
1: We, us guys are not very good at dealing with emotions. No. Women are much better at it. Uh, and, yes, a group of men takes time for them to kind of get into these things, but they get into them just as powerfully as women do once they get into it.
0: Yeah, and, and, and once they have understanding and they, they process it, it's interesting because it is that morning, and I don't know if you there's a a woman called a woman called Eleanor Westhead who did uh studies on parents with children with learning disabilities and she did go over all the mourning processes the denial grief envy uh fear all those things and it and it's until they go through the morning that they can actually accept the child and not look for something to fix them or heal them uh, and a lot of parents do start looking for that like p- parents with autism. Now that's a curious in, in in the essays did was there any parents that had children with autism in there? Oh yes. And and what kind Quite of a few. Uh, what kind of stories if Very you,
1: similar. Uh, for example, uh, there's one fellow who I've gotten to know mm-hmm. who wrote this he said My boy was diagnosed with autism and mental retardation. This was when the boy was about two years old. Okay. And he had been fine, and his mom and dad thought he was a great child, and everything was fine. He said, that hit me like a brick in the face. It was a confusing and bewildering time. I didn't know which end was up. I felt a grief beyond words, as if someone had died. But my child was very much alive. And this in this, I happen to know the long story of this story of it, this man, said, <clears throat> he and I have now become friends and his son has ne- since that time when he was about two years old, his son has never said anything, been able to speak. He had spoken before that and as sometimes happens with kids with autism, they don't talk anymore which is very sad and then the of course, the days when he, his child was first diagnosed, there wasn't much around to to take to treat kids with autism. So it may perhaps his son, maybe his son would have talked if he had an opportunity to get some help. But there wasn't
0: much help in those days. No, there wasn't. There wasn't a lot of the breakthrough therapies. Um, yeah, and so it, it's interesting because uh, that's even coming from a father's standpoint when uh, it comes to autism and and there's probably a lot of stories in there. Now, was there any stories that stuck out in the book that you always go back to?
1: Well, there's one. It's a, it's a long one, but I guess we have time for it. That, because people say, well, I don't, they sort of wonder, well, what do you mean this, talking about feelings? How does, what good is that? Uh, and the, one of the parents wrote, here very, a very very nice piece which again I'll read it from the book in which she explains how parents or grandparents and other family members or friends gain strength from the expression of emotion so she talked about she had a little girl or at the time was a little girl who needed brain surgery and she, she, was, she had a job and she said I cried when I asked my boss for time off for Carmen's surgery, and my boss said, You need to be strong for your daughter. And she says, I believe these well intentioned people were right. And from then on, I held my tears until I was alone. I refused to be weak and let my emotions control me. I vowed to be strong and control my emotions. Then later on, her daughter needed to go for surgery. There was a time lag there. She says, this time, I didn't cry in the doctor's office, and I didn't cry when I asked for time off from work. As she said, our close little family started coming apart. Our individual efforts at being strong were desensitizing and separating us from one another. The silence was becoming destructive, and we each felt alone and afraid. A week before her surgery, the little girl slipped, getting out of the tub. We ran to her and surrounded her. In comforting her, We formed one big family hug and cried. She was fine. But our common reaction made me realize how desperately we needed to allow ourselves to slip out of our strong silences to receive comfort from one another. And then she concludes, she says, Letting our emotions show and sharing our sorrow with loved ones is precisely the way we become strong. Stoicism is often applauded as strength, but it is a pretense that harms us as individuals, and can destroy us as families. Now that my family has learned this lesson, we continue to grow stronger. It, so,
0: it, and so she kind of points out there by sharing your pain and, and grief, it, it helped them grow, correct? Absolutely. We have about five minutes left in the show, and we I want to kind of get to the point where how do these parents end up going on, and, and what can they learn from these experiences?
1: Well, I wanted to, one more thing I wanted to mention, because I think it's important to talk about things people often don't talk about.
0: Yes, definitely.
1: And one of those things is that it's normal, and I've talked about this with to my own children, that parents want to kill their children. That
0: Yeah, they have a tendency. <laughs>
1: sometimes things get pretty difficult. I mean, for me, with my first child, even though he, the child didn't have any disabilities but when i had to get up at three o'clock in the morning i often thought oh, i would throw this kid out the window you know like my life would be much easier i wouldn't have to wake up at three o'clock in the morning <laughs> uh and one of the parents again in the book wrote about this and because people have these feelings and then they feel guilty and they don't realize that these are normal feelings as long as they don't act on them and they, again parent said it well, she said, guilt often arises from antagonistic feelings toward your child. There's a natural tendency to resent the little intruder who has turned your life upside down. While you try to treat your child with love and gentleness, your inner voice may be screaming with rage. Perhaps worse is when you catch yourself wishing your child had never been born and would die quietly and let you off the hook. Try to remember that feelings are not evil. As long as you continue to treat your child with love and respect, these thoughts and feelings are no reasons for guilt.
0: And you bring such a good point up because I've heard that a lot from parents, and it is—it's—it's it's a frustration that sometimes it creeps up to where, if—if if this didn't happen to me or why me or uh, it's a lot of that self-pity where they do go there. What if they and they the, a lot of parents I've talked to they. They call it daydreaming. What if my child just happened to, you know, got kid? I had one parent say, well, what if he got kidnapped? I'd be sad, but maybe I'd have my life back. And, yeah. and he goes, I've had Absolutely. that feelings. And he, in this workshop, he even started crying. He says, I shouldn't have that feelings as a parent. And I agree with you, Dr. Klein, because I, I, I think it's a normal human way as long as you don't act upon it and, and you right. know that it's a part of mourning.
1: Yeah, in fact, this is another little piece here. Yeah which a parent wrote, I cried when the doctor told me we were lucky our son didn't have a heart problem. She said, I cried not out of relief but out of disappointment. I was secretly hoping he would have such a serious heart defect that he wouldn't live long.
0: Oh, wow. Now, uh, go ahead.
1: But anyway, again, these are very intense feelings.
0: Now, Dr. Klein, we're we're running out of the uh, time for the show, but I want to okay. know how can these parents get a hold of you? And and order this book because they need to read this.
1: Well, it's at disabilitiesbooks dot com uh-huh. on the web, as your commercials have said. Let me just say something about the commercials. Just on about legal things. I didn't write those. They were writ- they were written, or the lead author is a is a parent, a mother who's also an attorney, and she has a son who's now an adult with significant autism, and. She has devoted her legal practice to the whole issue of how do you plan for the future for a child who you know is going to need help for the rest of the child 's life, and how do you do that because you know you're not going to be around forever oh wow. and that's what that's what those books and she does a, what she does something which unfortunately a lot of lawyers don 't know how to do. She writes so people can understand what she 's talking about. she writes about very complicated issues that are legal issues
0: that families face. Wow, and, and those can be found on the online too, correct?
1: Yeah, and, and she explains them so you understand what she's talking about.
0: Well, we've ran out of time, and we have to go ahead and go out. We're going to have you back on the show, correct, Dr. Yeah, Klein? I'd be happy to Okay, do it. we will have you back. That's it for our time, lady and gen- gentlemen that will listen to our audience. And if you have any questions, tune in to us next week. We'll be having another author on. And we're going to have Dr. Klein come back and talk about one of his books. Always remember Vegas, never give up. And you're listening to Never Give Up Show. Hey, guys. Thank you for listening to the Purpose Driven Person podcast. Something I said today resonated with you. Head over to my website. I'd love to give you a free gift to download. But you can also email me at purposedrivenperson at gmail.com. And don't forget to head over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And remember, guys, always continue to push your dreams and never give up. I'll see you next time.
1: Take care.